Hi team, this week we are going to begin chapter two in our book called The Power of Moments, Why Certain Experiences Have Extraordinary Impacts. This book is written by Tip Heath and Dan Heath. Chapter two is called Thinking Moments. What was your first day like at your current or most recent job or school? Is it fair to say that it was not a defining moment? Judging from the stories we've heard from underwhelmed employees, what follows is a pretty typical description of a first day. You show up, the receptionist doesn't think you didn't think you were starting until next week. You're shown to a desk. There's a monitor and an ethernet cable on the desk, but no computer. There's also a single binder clip. The chair still bears the imprint of the previous owner, like an ergonomic buttocks fossil. Your boss has not arrived yet. You're given an ethics and compliance manual to review. Quote, why don't you read over this and I'll swing back in a few hours, end quote, says the receptionist. The sexual harassment policy is so long and comprehensive, it makes you wonder a bit about your colleagues. Eventually, a friendly person from your floor introduces herself and whisks you around the office, interrupting 11 different people to introduce you. As a result, you worry that you have managed to annoy all of your colleagues within the first hour of your employment. You immediately forget all of their names, except Lester, who might just be the reason for the sexual harassment policy. Does that sound about right? The lack of attention paid to an employee's first day is mind-boggling. What a wasted opportunity to make a new team member feel included and appreciated. Imagine if you treated a first date like a new employee. I've got some meetings stacked up right now, so why don't you get settled in the passenger seat of the car and I'll swing back in a few hours. To avoid this kind of oversight, we must understand when special moments are needed. We must learn to think in moments to spot the occasions that are worthy of investment. This moment spotting habit can be, or can be unnatural. In organizations, for instance, we are consumed with goals. Time is meaningful only in so far as it clarifies or measures our goals. The goal is the thing. But for an individual human being, moments are the thing. Moments are what we remember and what we cherish. Certainly, we might celebrate achieving a goal, such as completing a marathon or landing a significant client. But the achievement is embedded in the moment. Every culture has its prescribed set of big moments, birthdays, weddings and graduations, of course, but also holiday celebrations and funeral rites in political traditions. They seem natural to us. 
But notice that every last one of them was invented, dreamed up by anonymous authors who wanted to give shape to time. This is what we mean by thinking in moments, to recognize where the prose of life needs punctuation. We'll explore three situations that deserve punctuation, transitions, milestones, and pits. Transitions are classical occasions for defining moments. Many cultures have a coming of age ritual, like the bar and bat mitzvahs or a quinceanera. In the Satre Maui tribe in the Brazilian Amazon, when a boy turns 13, he comes of age by wearing a pair of gloves filled with angry, stinging bullet ants, leaving his hands covered in welts. Because someone apparently asked, how can we make puberty harder? Coming of age rituals are boundary makers, markers. Um, coming of age rituals are boundary markers, attempts to crisp up an otherwise gradual evolution from adolescence to adulthood. Before this day, I was a child. After this day, I am a man, a man with very swollen hands. Transitions, like milestones and pits, are natural defining moments. The transition of getting married is a defining moment in life regardless of whether it is celebrated. But if we recognize how important these natural defining moments are, we can shape them, make them more memorable and meaningful. That logic shows why the first day of work is an experience worth investing in. For new employees, it's three big transitions. Intellectual, which is new work. Social, which is new people. And environmental, which is a new place. The first day shouldn't be set, shouldn't be a set of bureaucratic activities on a checklist. It should be a peak moment. Lonnie Lorenz Fry understood this opportunity. Fry, who worked in global branding strategy and marketing at John Deere, had heard from the company's leaders in Asia that they were struggling with employee engagement and retention. Quote, John Deere is not well, a no, well-known brand there, end quote, Fry said. Quote, it's like the Midwest in the U.S., where your grandpa probably had a John Deere tractor. <clears throat> As a result, employees had less of an emotional tie to the brand. Fry and her colleagues on the brand team saw an opportunity to build that connection. And it had to start on the employee's first day. Collaborating with a customer experience consultant Lewis Carborn, the team designed what is called the first day experience. Here's the way they wanted the day to unfold. Shortly after you accept the offer letter from John Deere, you get an email from a John Deere friend. Let's call her Annika. 
She introduces herself and shares some of the basics, where to park, what the dress norms are, and so forth. She also tells you that she'll be waiting to greet you in the lobby at 9 a.m. for your first day. When your first day comes, you park in the right place and you make your way to the lobby. And there's Annika. You recognize her from her photo. She points to the flat screen monitor in the lobby and it features the giant headline, Welcome. Annika shows you to your cubicle. There's a six foot tall banner set up next to it. It rises above the cubes to alert people that there's a new hire. People stop people stop by over the course of the day all to say hello to you. As you get settled, you notice the background image on your monitor. It's a gorgeous shot of John Deere equipment on a farm at sunset. And the copy says, welcome to the most important work you'll ever do. You notice you've already received your first email. It's from Sam Allen, the CEO of John Deere. In a short video, he talks a little bit about the company's mission, which is to provide the food, shelter, and infrastructure that will be needed by the world's growing population. He closes by saying, enjoy the rest of your first day, and I hope you'll enjoy a long, successful, filling career as part of the John Deere team. Now you notice there's a gift on your desk. It's a stainless steel replica of John Deere's original self-polishing plow, created in 1837. An accompanying card explains why farmers loved it. At midday, Annika collects you for a lunch off-site with a small group. They ask about your background and tell you about some of the projects they're working on. Later in the day, the department manager which is your boss's boss, comes over and makes plans to have lunch with you next week. You leave the office that day thinking, I belong here. The work we're doing matters and I matter to them. After the John Deere brand team completed its plan for the first day experience, some offices across Asia began to roll it out. In the Beijing office, it was such a hit that employees who'd been hired earlier were joking. I can quit and then I'll rejoin. In India, the program has helped to differentiate John Deere in a highly competitive labor market. Shouldn't every organization in the world have a version of this first day experience? John Deere's first day experience is a peak moment delivered at a time of transition. When a life transition lacks a moment, though, it can become formless. We often feel anxious because we don't know how to act or what rules to apply. Consider a story shared by Kenneth Doka, a licensed mental health counselor who is also an expert on grief. The story goes that a woman came to him who had lost her husband to Lou Gehrig's disease, also known as ALS. They'd had a happy marriage, she said. He'd 
he was a good father and a good husband. But ALS is a cruel, degenerative disease. And as her husband's illness advanced, her re he required more and more care. It was tough for both of them. He was a proud man, the owner of a small construction firm, and, quote, didn't do sick very well, end quote, she said. They fought more than they ever had. But they were both devout Catholics, and they had a tremendous faith in their marriage. She said that every night after a tough day, they put their hands together in bed so that their rings touched, and they'd repeat their wedding vows to each other. When she came to see Doka, it had been six years since her husband passed, and she told him that she thought she was ready to start dating again. But I can't take my wedding ring off, she said. I can't date with my wedding with my wedding ring, and I can't take it off. She believed that marriages were for life, but she also knew that she had honored her commitment. She was confused and stuck. Doka has written extensively about the power of therapeutic rituals to help people who are grieving. He suggested that she needed a ritual of transition to take the ring off, and she liked the idea. So with her permission, he worked with her to, he worked with her priest to create a small ceremony. It happened one Sunday afternoon after mass in the church where she got married. The priest had called together a group of her close friends and family members, many of whom had attended their wedding. The priest called them up around the altar. Then he began to ask her some questions. Were you faithful in good times and bad? Yes, she asked. In sickness and in health? Yes. The priest led her through her wedding vows, but in the past tense. She affirmed in the presence of the witnesses that she had been faithful, that she had loved and honored her husband. Then the priest said, may I have the ring, please? She took it off her finger and handed it to him. She would tell Doka later that it came off as if by magic. The priest accepted her ring. He and Doka had arranged for her ring to be interlocked with her husband's ring and then affixed to the front of their wedding photo. This ceremony allowed her to attest to herself and the people she loved that she had fulfilled her vows. It signaled to everyone present that her identity was about to change. It was a moment that allowed her a fresh start. At the heart of the reverse wedding story is a powerful insight. At the point, the, win the widow went to see Doka. She was ready to begin dating again. And it's clear that even if she hadn't met Doka, she would have started dating eventually on her own. Maybe it would have taken a month, maybe a year, 
maybe five years. And throughout that uncertain time, she would have felt anxious. Am I ready? Is it okay for me to be ready? What the widow and Doka's story needed was a landmark moment to capture the transition she was making. After that Sunday afternoon ceremony, I was ready. We have a natural hunger for these landmarks in time. Take the prevalence of the New Year's resolutions. The Wharton professor, Catherine Milkman, said she found it striking that, quote, at the start of a new year, we feel like we have a clean slate. It's a French start effect. All of my past failures from last year, and I can think, those are not me. That's old me. That's not new me. New me isn't going to make these mistakes, end quote. In other words, New Year's resolutions are not really about resolutions. After all, for most people, the resolutions haven't changed. Most people wanted to lose weight and save money on December 31st, too. What we're doing on New Year's Day is more like a mental accounting trick. Our past failures are left on the ledge, on the ledger of old me. New me starts today. New Year's resolutions should really be called New Year's absolutions. Milkman realized that if her quote, fresh start theory, end quote, was right, then the slate cleaning effect couldn't be confined to New Year's Day. It should also be true for other landmark dates that would give us an excuse to reset our record, such as the start of a new month or even a new week. Milkman had er, Milkman and her colleague uh, tracked down attendance data for a university fitness center, and they found strong proof that their fresh start hypothesis. The probability that students visited the gym increased at the beginning of each week by 33%, each month by 14%, and a new semester by 47%. So fresh starts happen not only on New Year's Day, but also on any other landmark date. If you're struggling to make a transition, Create a defining moment that draws a dividing line between old you and new you. There are certain landmark dates that are near universal. A survey by the researchers Adam Altler and Hal Hirschfield asked participants to specify the most significant birthdays across a person's lifespan. And the winners ranked in order of votes were 18, 21, 30, 40, 50, 60, and 100. These are all milestone birthdays. And every one of them calls for a celebration, or in the case of a 100th birthday, a grudging gratitude that the odometer is still moving. Other than 18 and 21, which come 
with an expansion of civic and alcoholic rights, respectively, these numbers are arbitrary. Turning 50 seems like a real threshold of some kind, but of course it's not. There is no day in your life when you are more than a day older than the day before, unless daylight savings is a is the black magic that it seems to be. Aging is exquisitely incremental. To add meaning to our lives, though, we connect these thresholds, 30, 40, 50, and then freak out when we get close to them. But being arbitrary doesn't make these occasions less meaningful. Milestones are milestones. And just as the, there are familiar defining moments that mark transitions, such as graduation ceremonies, there are others that commemorate milestones, 40th birthday parties, 25th anniversary trips, 30th year on the job plaques or gold watches. We will not dwell on milestones since people seem to have a natural knack for noticing them. But as with moments of transition, there are some milestones that seem to go ignored. Students get shortchanged, for instance. Sure, they advance in grade, but why not celebrate their 1,000th day in the classroom or their 50th book read? And why not celebrate a teacher for their 1,000th student taught? Companies in this era of apps and personal tracking devices have grown much smarter about surfacing milestones that are previously invisible. The app Pocket which stores articles from the internet on your phone for later reading, informs users when they read one million words. The fitness tracking bracelet Fitbit presents users with awards such as the 747 badge given for climbing 4,000 lifetime flights of stairs, which rises roughly the altitude that 747s fly and the Monarch Migration Badge, which is described as, follow, as follows. Quotes, every year, the Monarch Butterfly migrates 2,500 miles to warmer climates. With the same lifetime miles in your pocket, you're giving those butterflies some hot competition, end quote. These companies are cl cleverly conjuring up defining moments of pride for the trivial cost of an email. All it required was some attention to milestones.